0: OK, uh, we have Dan Dresner from Fletcher School talking about uh, temporal aspects of theories about power in international relations. He is a, uh, a legend in the field. He's worked at Rand Corporation, Department of Treasury. Uh, he's written five or six books, and where you read his bio. Uh, six, six. Yeah. It's up to six. Excellent. Uh, he's got more fingers to go. So uh, he's also written. Um, Numerous articles from everything from to uh, foreign affairs and foreign policy. So he's quite accomplished. This was one of his first books, Sanctions Paradox. We're going to let it out. Here it comes. Theories of International Relations and Zombies. And now we'll quickly put it back. Without further ado, here we have Dan Dresner. Take it away.
1: Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a a pleasure to be here. I'm going to probably, I think I'm told I'm supposed to talk for 45 minutes and then 45. My hunch is I will come in under 45 minutes, um, which is more interesting for me anyway because I'm really looking for feedback. Um, And let me start by, by offering an opening caveat, which is say in some ways, this is the start of a project that I am, you know, not. This is not on the fast track. In other words, I want to actually take some time and marinate uh, on this, um, and I'm also. So, in that sense, probably, you know, criticism. I think at this stage will probably be more useful than. Uh, then perhaps at later stages when I start getting convinced that I'm right. Um, I'm now not necessarily convinced that I'm right is the important way of putting this. And also, in some ways, this is very different from most of what I've written, uh, particularly recently in the sense of it's about the least policy-relevant thing um, I think that I could possibly produce. Having read Mike's book, however, I realized that's a hopeless effort. So really, in some ways, I'm just pivoting back to, you know, to something that I can do in terms of, of trying to, uh, to make this a little more engaging. Um, in some ways, the, the reason I'm writing this is that be, you can argue that the state of international relations theories, we understand it, is in such a bad way that there is actual, actually a genre in the literature talking about why the state of international relations theory is so bad. Um, there was a special issue, uh, I believe, of EJIR a couple of years ago um, on this. There's been a fair amount of work um, talking about uh, the fact that you know we're fragmented, we don't talk to each other, and so on and so forth. Um, there's a large literature particularly on the, uh, the passing of the paradigms, um, the fact that they're ostensibly not terribly meaningful in terms of scholarly discourse, and yet that's contradicted by two um, empirical observations. The first is, is that in most international relations syllabi, uh, both undergraduate and graduate, sort of paradigmatic takes still dominate those syllabi, which suggests that when you're being taught this, you're still being educated in the paradigms and then apparently after that you're supposed to reject them or something. Um, And then second, in terms of citation patterns, they also clearly matter, Um, and not necessarily in a healthy way. They matter in the sense that essentially um, scholars working within one paradigm cite only scholars within that paradigm. If they cite outside that, it's just sort of that one sentence to say like, you know, as opposed to stupid Mearsheimer comma 2001 or something, um, you know, I'm going to make a more nuanced argument or what have you. and I would argue that this is a problem in terms of the state of the field. And it's not what it, you know, and maybe this is me getting older but uh, and more crotchety, but this is not how I, you know, even when I was going to graduate school during the sort of peak of the paradigm wars, people actually did talk to each other or there was an actual attempt to address, um, you know, uh, paradigmatic takes in, uh, across the board. Um, and I think what it's led to is sort of less inter, you know, paradigmatic debate, but it's also led, I would argue, implicitly to a narrowing of research questions. That the bulk of international relations research right now, and let me be very clear, I'm not insulting this research or denigrating it in any way, I actually think it's really very good, but a lot of the sort of talks about the turn towards practice or middle range theory, um, or the emphasis on, on case studies or uh, experimental methods, all essentially very much narrow questions that that are being asked in in international relations, which frankly is not why I got into the field in the first place, so I don't want to do that stuff. Um, So uh, this is the sort of thing I was talking about. Because there's, I think, less grand theory or less of an emphasis on grand theory, you are seeing, you know, a proliferation of work in what we would call middle range theory, um, you know, emphasis on sort of micro uh, practices and micro foundations and very narrow experiments. Now again. All of these things are actually, I think, producing useful scholarship and useful knowledge. I am not in any way denigrating um, those sorts of tendencies. But I do think there's an opportunity cost in them, in that while these things are really good at answering smaller questions, I'm not sure these sorts of methodologies are great at answering bigger questions. Um, and this is also leading to, you know, what we would consider, the, I think, the segmentation of IR theory. And the quote from Lake, I think, Um, captures this perfectly. And I say this because David Lake is someone who actually does want to get rid of all of the isms. If you take a look at what Lake has argued, he's argued sort of against isms for a long time. But even he acknowledges that unless we have a common lexicon you know, to talk about international politics across these paradigms that allow for some sort of translation, then essentially what we have is a sort of Tower of Babel rather than anything actually that we would consider sort of productive problem solving or productive theorizing. Um, And the reason I bring all this up is that oh there we go. Um, is that the thing that I care about, which is power, um, is probably simultaneously the central concept to our discipline, and yet we have absolutely no consensus whatsoever about what it means. Um, you know? just using adjectives before power. These were just the adjectives with S's to start off with. You know, if I'd actually done a slide with all of the adjectives, I think it would have looked like a pointillist painting or something. Um, But the truth is, is that, you know, while there's a lot of uh, of discussion about power in international relations, the definitions are so incommensurate with each other and so diverse that I think this is one of the examples where fragmentation has actually hurt the ability, to potentially have these kinds of common conversations. You know, the quotes from Gilpin, you know, suggest this, and I think the quote, uh, there's a, not a quote from Barnett and Duval or Gazzini, but that is essentially the message that both of them are saying um, in their papers, which suggests that essentially it's futile to think that we're going to come up with a common um, definition of power. And I think part of the problem is, is that, you know, when we talk about definitions on this, when we go back to sort of the core sources or, or you know sort of core text in terms of talking about definitions. One of the problems is that the very people that we often assign, you know, or think of as coming up with these definitions have muddied the waters even further, which is to say they came up with an original definition and then very often have published subsequent texts or subsequent editions of their primary text that sort of fiddle around with that original definition. So Hans Morgenthau, you know, is the father of sort of modern international relations, published seven editions of of Politics Among Nations. Robert Dahl, who's sort of the standard sort of original uh... definition that everyone sort of starts with when they write about this stuff then wrote modern political analysis and you know constantly tweaked the definition or you know talked about it in multiple issues Stephen luke's in some ways is even the worst case about this because his nineteen seventy four book power radical view says one thing about when he's talking about the third face of power but if you've read the two thousand five second edition he almost does a one eighty in terms of what he means about this uh... the third face of power and it, it leads to you know a fair amount of confusion And Joe Nye, I believe, has published six books about soft power. I'm not entirely sure what the the final count is, but there's a lot of them. Um, And, you know, uh, I actually hosted him yesterday at at Fletcher, and I'm pretty sure he gave a definition that was at variance with his original definition of the, the term, which suggests that we might be having some issues. And I think, you know, some of the more recent interventions have potentially been problematic, and in some ways that's one of the things that inspired... The, the project that I'm, I'm trying to engage in now. The first is, is that any time I've tried to teach the Barnett and Duval paper, which you could argue is the most widely cited um, international, you know, international relations paper about power published in this century, my students really hate that paper. Um, and I'm not entirely sure, maybe it's because I'm a bad professor, that's entirely possible. But it's also possible that their rubric is not necessarily clear, um, not just to policy relevant students, but even to those potentially pursuing PhDs. And then the, the Baldwin book, which is the, you know, David Baldwin spent his entire career writing about power, and this in some ways is sort of the capstone of that project. But that book is almost an entire sort of relitigation of why Robert Dahl was right all along, essentially. Um, and it, it was disturbing to me reading that book and refereeing that book that the overwhelming majority of the sites to the literature. Um, all predated, I believe, 1985, um, which suggests that in some ways discussions of power have not necessarily moved forward um, all that much. And the question is, is it possible to do better um, or possible to sort of rethink this? So my suggestion, and this is based on on sort of my own work on this, um, is that I think essentially one of the reasons that there's so many incommensurate understandings about power, so many incommensurate definitions about power, is that essentially theoretical debates about power freight in a lot of hidden assumptions about time, which is to say that most definitions about power implicitly have a sort of hidden set of assumptions about the way time works and the sort of unit of analysis with respect to time. So the two issues that I think in particular are an awful lot of of theories about power, an awful lot of international relation theories more generally Uh, truck in but don't necessarily talk about explicitly is first what the time horizon is of key causal processes. In other words, whatever the key causal processes are that drive their story. Is it a fast-acting process that could happen relatively soon or is it a long-acting process that takes considerable amounts of time to kick in? And then the second dimension, I think, on which um, scholars diverge is what I would refer to as the temporal returns to power. Um, and I'll talk about this a little more in a little bit later. But primarily, it's about whether or not um, the theorist believes that the exercise of power in the short term leads to positive or negative feedback effects from the rest of the system. Um, and what's surprising to me is the ways in which that, you know, th- these assumptions are made uh, going forward. And I do think that if you think about the different theories this way, you wind up realizing the way in which some theories have a little more in common than you might necessarily expect. But also there are ways in which you can presumably develop ideally testable hypotheses or research agendas in which these multiple paradigms can talk to each other. And again, in the end, that's kind of what I want. I want to see these paradigms, as much as they develop on their own, also be able to have at least some sort of common grammar. Time in IR theory is not, uh, you know, if it is mentioned, it's often mentioned only in passing. And as I said, in some ways, what what often happens is that a lot of implicit assumptions are being made about it, but not necessarily explicit assumptions. And I think um, Chris McIntosh, uh, who has written the most interesting article, I think, about this, is correct when he points out that essentially each paradigm in IR has a certain sort of set of assumptions about time, which probably applies relatively well to within their own paradigm, but what they don't realize they're doing is by making these assumptions, they're also assuming that the rest of IR theory, international relations theory, should operate along these same assumptions, when in fact that's not necessarily the case. The different paradigms are in fact going to have different assumptions um, about sort of the unit of time that they're thinking about, the time horizon, as well as these other sorts of dimensions. And I think if we think about this a little more seriously, we can also think, you know, ways in which power is treated by these different paradigms um, in different ways, and I think it helps to explain, you know, how these theories can potentially talk to each other. So you know, if we think about, you know, the time horizon for key causal processes, in other words, if we think about what is it that drives particular theories, if the thing that drives, you know, the causal process that drives a particular theory is a, let's say one that requires a crisis or invites an immediate crisis. Those are instances in which you have short time horizons where, you know, there are plenty of debates about the fungibility of power resources. You would argue that in a shorter time horizon, almost by definition, the fungibility of power has to be restricted. That the ability to take resources from pot A and move them to pot B, or to apply sort of, you know, certain kinds of power, almost by definition will take longer than others. And so, if you narrow the time horizon, um... because of the causal process that you're concerned with essentially you're allowed to you know assume that that power is restricted in terms of fungibility that you can't necessarily apply military power to an economic situation or vice versa or what have you um, the other thing that happens if you're operating in a short time horizon is that some of the causal processes that uh... let's say some of the more constructivist or critical approaches in some ways get restricted um, if you're talking about changes in actors identities um, or even changes in, in sort of, uh, of language, those are slower-acting processes. Um, sometimes they can happen relatively quickly, but by and large, you know, they won't. Um, and so in some ways, if you're focusing on a short time horizon, certain you know, aspects of theory aren't necessarily going to be terribly useful for you. On the other hand, if you allow for a longer time horizon... Then suddenly you can start talking about, you know, fungibility in a way that is uh, more elastic. I mean, to use the language of economics, you know, when we talk about fungibility of power, we talk about in terms of international relations. Economists refer to it as liquidity when they talk about um, money. The question is, what assets can you convert quickly into other assets? And the thing about liquidity is that if you widen time, then suddenly any asset becomes relatively liquid because if you give a long enough time, you should be able to sell it. And I think that also is true for power resources. The longer the time horizon you're allowed, the more options you could potentially take in terms of applying resources and using them somewhere else. Um, And at the same time, also, actor identities and even actor preferences are obviously more fluid over time, whereas in a shorter time horizon, you're always assuming that preferences are fixed and frozen. And indeed, certainly, actor identities are presumably fixed and frozen. Um, In terms of the the sort of temporal decay or, you know, the, the temporal effects of power, I think it's interesting to compare it to what we would consider sort of geographic or spatial decay of power. Um, th- one of the few things I think that actually most international relations scholars would tend to agree on is the notion of the loss of strength gradient, that essentially if you try to apply power geographically further away from what you would consider your sort of home base, its effect is going to be more muted. Um, so much like gravity, the further away you are when you're trying to apply something, the less influence. This doesn't mean you can't change things. It doesn't mean the power is going to be useless. It just means that the further away it is, presumably, the less uh, useful power is. So, in terms of you know geography, or, or in terms of space, there's, a su- there's a, an assumption of a spatial decay of power. It's not necessarily obvious to me, however, that the same assumption is made with respect to time. It's not clear that there's always a temporal decay of power. In fact, in some ways, there's a fair number of scholarship that would suggest the reverse, that there might be positive temporal returns to power. Yet, the exercise of power at time t actually leads to dramatic improvements in your situation in time t plus 1, t plus 2, and so on and so forth. This is a genuine, I think, topic of debate um, in political science, not just in international relations. On the sort of positive feedback side, you have a whole array of sort of you know, concepts of power ranging from path dependence, which you know, Paul Pearson talked about uh, most prominently in his 2000 uh, APSR article, Concepts of either the second face of power that Bachrach and Barats talk about or the third face of power that Luke's talks about um, In some ways are built on the notion that if you can manage to create institutions Or create patterns of domination and or attraction you alter the preferences of actors And or sort of eliminate options of actors That means essentially you sort of lock in um, the ability to exercise power over time so if those you know, scholars are correct, and there's actually potentially increasing returns to power. That If you're successful in the use of power now, it actually increases your options and increases your capabilities in the future. Um, and indeed, this also, I think, comes up in debates about the the stability of unipolarity. You know, someone like Wolforth who believes that unipolarity is indeed the most stable uh, international uh, distribution of power. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that they're right. That's a whole array of literature. There is a contrary array of literature um, that suggests, in fact, that the dynamics that people who talk about path dependence talk about are wildly exaggerated. Um, So Scott Page, for example, uh, suggests that, you know, people don't necessarily understand what they're talking about when they use the phrase path dependence, that in fact path dependence isn't necessarily as common as as many people would think. Um, And there's a whole variety of negative feedback mechanisms, such that if you exercise power at time t, at time t plus one, you actually are facing greater frictions, greater cost to the exercise of power, rather than fewer costs. Um, whether this comes in the form of, of weapons of the weak or in the form of balancing or imperial overstretch, what have you. And this, indeed, also gets tied into literature out there that argues that unipolarity is actually not the most stable. It's actually the most fragile. Um, think about Randy Schwellers' work where even you know rhetorical moves against uh, the hegemon trigger you know can potentially trigger wild overreactions. So the point is that this is an unsettled question. And, and that in contrast to the spatial decay of power, where it's generally assumed that the further away you are, the less power you can exercise. In terms of time, it's it's a genuine debate. You know, if you have more power now, does that mean you will actually be able to increase your power in the future, or does it mean that if you try to do that, you will face negative feedback going forward? So, if we do that, you know, what what I'd, Thinking about that, I then sort of basically went back to read into sort of the core text of IR theory. So this is me going back to grad school, basically, um, and reading everything that I'd read then, but this time reading it with an attention to time. In other words, what were the temporal assumptions made in all of these texts, um, either explicitly, which was not all that common, or implicitly based on what they said in terms of the sort of uh, time horizon of causal processes and in terms of their attitudes about whether or not there were positive or negative temporal returns to power. So. That leads sorry, to sort of four major uh, you know, paradigmatic uh, answers that I got. When it comes to realism, realism in some ways focuses on a short time horizon. In some ways, anarchy mandates that you have to focus um, on a short time horizon. Because the whole point of anarchy in a realist model is that you're operating in a world of self-help, and you have to be you know, focused on survival. It's survival or uber alles um, this doesn't mean that realists don't think that the great powers can't focus on other things, but in some ways survival always has to be the, the most proximate thing um, And it focuses the mind in a way that none of these others do, uh, none of these other uh, Potential impulses do indeed you can argue that fear winds up being a driver of short-term thinking so even realist scholars who recognize that the balance of power doesn't automatically lead to, let's say, state death all that common, nonetheless argue that the perceptions of anarchy wind up causing actors to exaggerate the degree to which they have to deal with sur- uh, survival, and so, as a result, act as if um, they're going to be thinking about survival. So here I'm thinking of someone like Stephen Van Ever's work. Um, this obviously leads, you know, contrary to Waltz, I mean, in some ways, Waltz is the outlier here who believes that power is particularly fungible, most of the sort of empirical work on realism, most of the sort of realist theory assumes a limited fungibility of power, um, which is to say that, that precisely because you're operating in such a short time horizon, you can't necessarily focus on these other tools of power. You have to be focused on survival. Now I want to stress that, that this does not mean that realists have a short-term worldview. They don't. Realism is very famous for saying, we have predicted recurring patterns of world politics since the days of Thucydides. It is more that the actors operating within a a realist framework are almost required to have short-time horizons. And because they do that, they wind up having to focus on survival they wind up focusing on accumulating power and indeed this is the very tragedy of realism because by doing so this leads to the other aspect of realism which is realism very strongly believes in negative temporal returns to power Um, actors who try to acquire more and more power inevitably trigger a variety of negative feedback mechanisms whether we're talking about balance of power politics or the security dilemma Um, that wind up essentially constraining or raising the costs of what they want to do. Now again, there are exceptions, and I want to stress, you know, at this point that most of the theories that I'm talking about, or the sort of paradigms I'm talking about, do have exceptions where they might not necessarily make the arguments that I'm making here. In some ways, I'm primarily talking about in the main with most of these theories, um, rather than the exceptions. So certainly, for example, realists do talk about bandwagoning, and they also talk about buck-passing. But these are supposed to be exceptions in the world of realism, not the norm. The norm is, in fact, supposed to be balancing behavior, balancing against rising powers. So again, the idea here is that as you accumulate more power, you inevitably trigger negative feedback effects, and that's what essentially is supposed to bring the back into equilibrium. If you look at liberal institutionalism, liberals undeniably have a longer time horizon than, than realists. Um, in some ways this goes to, you know, think that the nature of The Prisoner's Dilemma as the sort of classic paradigmatic way, or you know, exemplar way to explain the difference between realism and liberalism. If realists believe that the problem with The Prisoner's Dilemma is that you're only playing it once and you could lose and thereby disappear from the game, liberals like to talk about a shadow of the future. Um, and indeed, that's something that's worth pointing about. The extent to which most IR theory talks about time, they mostly talk about time in the way it affects interest rather than it affects power. Um, because presumably if you have a longer shadow of the future, that affects your preferences for cooperation or not in a way different than if you had a short time horizon. Um, Liberals obviously believe that uh, if you have a longer time horizon, cooperation is possible in a world of anarchy. Indeed, that's the primary insight uh, that liberals bring to the table. That said, there are ways in which liberals don't have that much longer of a time horizon or make assumptions that essentially restrict mobility of of uh, of the actors um... in ways consistent with sort of a rational choice framework which is one of the very natures of game theory is that if you're modeling something in a game theoretic way you're assuming that both the actors and the strategies are essentially constant and unchanging Which, if you do that, is a very short-term way of thinking. Because if you allow for a longer time horizon, there might be new strategies that emerge. There might be new actors that emerge. And indeed, there might be actor preferences that switch over time. So in some ways, the very reliance on game theory actually leads to a much more restricted um, uh, set of ways of thinking about uh, the way in which the world can change. And similarly, if you take a look at, at the way realists think about complex interdependence, and here I'm thinking about Cohen and I, almost by definition they talk about the limited fungibility of resources. Cohen and I are very strongly believe, you know, operating in a social power framework, that you can only use certain kinds of power in its relevant issue area. that it's not necessarily easy to take power in issue A and apply it to issue B. So again, it's a relatively limited fungibility of power. Where liberals are most obviously different from realists, however, is that they believe it's possible to generate positive temporal returns to power. Liberals believe that the action or the creation of institutions can in some ways launder or mask the exercise of power and afford legitimacy to when actors actually exercise power. That exercising power through institutions in some ways mitigates negative feedback and indeed allows for positive feedback because institutions in some ways have network externality properties where they actually gain in value the more people that are members of institutions or that uh, uh, cooperate with the institutions. Furthermore, institutions almost by definition embody the sort of second face of power in terms of setting a particular agenda uh, that that institution cares about, but almost in, uh, it, more importantly, by ruling out other options that, let's say, revisionist states or challenger states might want to potentially consider. Liberals are also relatively strong believers in the power of path dependence and in the idea that you know, in some ways, all the debates about the liberal international order that we've had over the last couple of years, you know, evoke the notion that for liberals, for people like John Eikenberry, um, the components of the liberal international order are mutually reinforcing. They're mutually complementary with the idea that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, which again suggests the efficiency, at least for liberals, of institutions. Um, And similarly, you could argue Joe Nye's very concept of soft power is the notion that power is in and of itself attractive, that the exercise of power done adroitly, um, because if you look at, at sort of Nye's components of soft power, Um, it's not just values, it's also the efficient, um, successful execution of policies, that it winds up actually acting as an attractor rather than as generating negative feedback. So again, I think that's the obvious area where uh, liberals disagree with realists. If we look at social constructivism, you know, now in contrast to either liberals or realists, the time horizon starts to widen dramatically. uh, Because constructivists are primarily concerned with identity formation, and the way in which norms, you know, can be constituted and or uh, constrain um, uh, actors in the system. Um, these almost by definition are much slower acting social processes. It's very tough to create a norm overnight. And if you try to do so very often, you will discover that you're uh, you're not necessarily going to be successful. And indeed, Wendt, uh, at least in his 1999 book, is very specific in saying that Realism and liberalism might be good for sort of short term theory, but the long durée is where constructivism essentially takes over. Um, and indeed, I think uh, Gazzini's work also uh, reflects this as well. Because the key causal processes that constructivists focus on is the creation of norms and the constitution of identities, and because that takes longer, the the sort of empirical phenomenon they're interested in are empirical phenomena that usually have a much longer duration than what, let's say, liberals or realists are potentially concerned with. Um, where constructivists do agree with with liberals, I think, is again in terms of the positive returns of power, returns to power. And here, I think, this is where I think often constructivists are mis, uh, misconstrued, and I think there's you know more interesting literature recently, particularly. Let's say Stacey Goddard and Dan Nexon's work, where they point out that the construction of norms is in and of itself a power politics move and a strategic act. That just because these norms wind up constituting identities doesn't mean that you know, actors that are powerful won't try to manipulate or game the system in their favor. Um, and indeed, the point the constructivists raised is that the creation of norms and the creation of sort of legitimate forms of power, in some ways, again, reduce the negative temporal returns to power and lead to, if anything, positive temporal returns to power. That if you're successful in the creation of norms, um, you create norm cascades that wind up, you know, not leading to any kind of balancing behavior in which the norm winds up getting enshrined completely. Now you are seeing some more interesting recent work on sort of challenges to norms. Um, I think, a generation ago, the the assumption was, well, you create a norm cascade, the norm is entrenched, and that's it, the game is over. Uh, I think you're seeing more interesting recent research about the ways in which norms can be challenged, so it's not like that's the the way the game ends. But that said, I think there there are two counters to that. The first is, is that, um, by and large, even those scholars who look at the opposition to norms acknowledge that the longer the norm has been around, and the more widely it's accepted, the ability of sort of sabotage or, or uh, pushback strategies gets more constrained. They can't do that much. And second and more importantly, almost by definition, you know, if constructivists believe that norms get internalized and that identities, are, you know, based on norms get internalized, um, eventually that affects preferences to the point where really the third face of power is kicked in. And in fact it wouldn't even necessarily occur to actors that they should necessarily oppose it. Um, so if you're successful in terms, if you're an actor or norm entrepreneur that trying to create these sorts of things, then presumably over time if these norms wind up becoming entrenched, you're actually even more powerful in terms of punishing actors that violate norms or labeling actors as norm violators. And then finally there are the sort of more critical theories. I think this is where I've gotten the strongest, strongest pushback on this paper from non-critical theorists, um, which is I'm trying to take these things seriously. Um, but that said, I do think you know critical theorists, um, to some extent, when they talk about sort of causal processes, are also talking about longer, you know acting processes um, in terms of sort of changing identities or even, in some cases, changing the language um, or the sort of discursive power uh that dominates, you know, the ways in which we we go about our everyday life. And I think Cox's, you know, Robert uh Cox's distinction between what he called problem solving theory versus critical theory is very useful here, where he acknowledges that problem solving theory is one in which you essentially hold actor identities um, and preferences constant, and then he acknowledges that you know, sort of traditional realist theory, you know, is probably going to be more of use there. He's also interested in critical theory, where if you widen the time aperture, it allows for the possibility of shifting identities um, and alternative identities. And I think this also gets at what Barnett and Duvall are talking about when they refer to productive power. The difference between critical theory I think and constructivists, uh, or sort of Wentian constructivists, is that critical theory believes in negative returns to power. Critical theory is almost by definition based on criticism. Um, And in some ways what critical theory focuses on, and this is where I'm not necessarily sure they're right about this, but this is what I actually do think they think, is that. The act of, crit- you know, for, for critical theorists, it's theory all the way down. And the very act of engaging in critical theory is in some ways subverting whatever the hegemonic discourse is or whoever the hegemon is. And indeed, the goal of critical theory is very often to problematize these hegemonic structures. Because critical theorists believe that if you do that in the first place, if you denaturalize what we would consider privileged discourse, that, in the end, sort of strips away the legitimacy that constructivists and liberals talk about and and reveals what is supposed to be stark power relationships. And for many critical theorists, the very act of doing that helps to bring more hegemonic actors down. Indeed, it almost seems like critical theorists... Target their critical theory at whatever they consider to be the hegemonic structure. The distinction among different critical theorists is often is, what do you think that hegemonic structure is? If you're a feminist scholar, well, then it's clearly the patriarchy. If you're a Marxist scholar, then clearly it's, you know, the capitalist mode of production or what have you. Um, There are other critical theories that I'm not entirely sure I understand, but I'm sure they know what their, you know, the hegemon, what the, the boogeyman is that they want to target. So if you think about it that way, Critical theorists clearly do believe um, that the very, you know, they want to focus on what they think of as powerful out there. And they think that by even focusing on it and sort of exposing it, they wind up weakening it. So, it's not exactly a two by two, but this does lead to a sort of temporal typology, I think, um, in terms of sort of the, the... the uh, the sort of temporal horizon of key causal processes, and whether you think that there are strongly decreasing or strongly increasing returns to power over time, where realism is sort of you know in the short uh, on both of those, and then the opposite of that is constructivism. Liberals have a long, somewhat longer uh, you know temporal horizon, um, but nonetheless believe more strongly in positive returns, and you see what critical theorists do. So, key takeaways. Um, the most important i think and and i really do think this is important is that i think there's a natural and this is my one act of critical theory in this paper. I do think there's a natural tendency in the literature to assume that realism is the paradigm that focuses most intently on power. And I think, having read the, you know, reread a lot of these uh, sort of classic texts, that my takeaway is that no, all of these paradigms actually think relatively seriously about power. They just think seriously about power in different ways from realism. Um, and that indeed, very often, the way that realists interpret other paradigms. Assumes a lack of strategic thought in those paradigms. And again, I don't think that's actually accurate. If anything, the tendency in most of these paradigms is to talk about the causal processes that they're interested in in a sort of strategic manner. Um, Again, sort of a la Goddard and Nixon. Um, Second, I think what's interesting is the ways in which these paradigms overlap or the, the commonalities they have. I think it's, you know, it explains why I think there are ways in which liberals and constructivists actually do have a common language. Um, sometimes when they're talking about power because really they both believe in positive temporal returns. I also think it explains occasionally why it is uh, that postmodernists and realists often have a lot in common because they wind up focusing much more closely on the negative returns to power. Um, I think the other striking thing about this is the degree to which most paradigms have relatively simple and monotonic assumptions about the temporal returns to power. There are theorists out there that I think have somewhat more sophisticated takes, you know, which is not necessarily good or bad, it's just different, that have sort of parabolic takes, um, whether you want to talk old school like Ibn Khaldun or you want to talk about Robert Gilpin, where they think that it's possible to sort of build up power, but that eventually over time, um, you know, empires decay and die and so on and so forth. And this is sort of a, a sort of life cycle model more than anything else. So, where do we go from here? Um, in terms of the discipline what i would like to see is sort of more explicit assumptions in terms of sort of grand ir theory made about time in other words to at least say well what is the sort of unit of time analysis that i'm interested in what is the time horizon you know of my key causal uh, you know the, of my actors and then ideally you know again to promote greater cooperation the question of whether or not you think the exercise of power in the short term generates positive or negative returns over time. Um, I actually think that's an interesting hypothesis on which there is no consensus, but also something on which each of the paradigms that I've listed would actually have interesting things to say. And again, part of my goal here is that I want to see slightly less fragmentation of IR theory uh, than we have right now. Um, As to where I go from here in terms of my project, I think I need to refine these arguments a little bit further. I need to do obviously a little bit more reading and think a little harder. And then what I want to do when I've when I've finished that is to essentially revisit some of what we would consider sort of the big cases in IR theory, ranging from the Cuban Missile Crisis to the start of World War I to let's say the 2008 financial crisis to the end of the Cold War and look at them in terms of sort of these different ways in which we think about power and time, essentially by looking at them in sort of different apertures, sort of the crisis of the moment, as opposed to sort of the ways in which we got to that crisis and the sort of after effects as well. And I guess that's it. Yay. Thank Thanks. You very
0: much. <laughs> Thank you, I'll uh, take questions. Just raise your hand. If you have uh, something right on target, just raise two fingers. And the top is first. first. Okay,
2: that's a very interesting talk. Uh, I must confess that I'm an economist by training, but I have studied at deep talk international relations. I'm sorry, what's your last name? I apologize for D- asking. D-U-E-G. Okay, got it. Okay. So uh, I have a lot of questions, but I'll just ask them in three brief uh, questions. One is you, you're, I, I really like your attempt to sort of revitalize theory in a good way but as an economist studying international relations, I don't have an idea what, you, what they mean by a theory. Is it an organizing principle? Is it a theoretical construction that implicitly leads to a model which, which has clear predictions? You know, rational choice theory is not a theory at all. Uh, uh, you know, even realism, unlike what my friend Sebastian would say, I don't think it is a theory. It, it is a, a way of organizing thinking about power and anarchical situations. So unless IR scholars can really clarify what they mean by a theory, <coughs> these kind of uh, things will continue. That's, that's one, I want your comment on that. Second, about power. You started by saying power is such a confused and confusing concept. Everybody has different opinions, they change their minds. But it seems to me, while I agree with you, and, and this is not just true of IR, it's true of everything. Lukes is not an IR scholar, and nor is Foucault who you, who you cite. It's, uh, economists have tried to neglect power with perfect competition, uh, which is absolutely silly, but, but very, very self, self, um, self-interested self for some people. So, uh, but anyway, uh, my, my main point is about power being so difficult. I don't see how your attempt to introduce time is going to really make this any easier. It's in fact making it harder, because you don't even talk about what power is. I think much more interesting is if you want to understand power, is to try to have a provisional definition which works in a particular context and looks at sources and and areas of power. Uh, my third point is: I think your 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 work is very interesting because it it makes things very.
1: I'm waiting
2: for uh, the butt. <laughs> No, no, it's it's not a but. I mean, everything has a but, as you know. It's a very interesting way to bring in time which actually complicates matters even further, but it's a way that it should be done. But given that, um, (laughs) but but given that, uh, I would defend some realists as saying, like Keynes, in the long run, we are all dead. So if there's a storm now, and your ship is sunk, it doesn't matter if the storm is going to end later. So if, if you don't, protect yourself, and now you might never live to see another day. So I don't think they're not interested in the long run, but they may be over-concerned about certain ways of keeping power. Constructivists also, I think, uh, I'll finish just now, yeah. Uh, but constructivists, constructivists also are concerned with the short run, but they take uh, the fact that ideas now are socially constructed, and, and they're not material and so forth, that even has current implications. Uh, they're not just looking at the long run. Finally, critical theorists, uh, if you take the Marxian roots of Cox, for example, really emphasize power and its, its increasing returns, but try to find holes in it to criticize and to open up questions. So there's a normative idea of power, if it's exercised in a bad way, should be questioned and challenged, but I don't think Cox or anybody else, Marx certainly would, would not say that the capitalists. I'm
1: going to rule for a long time. So those are some thoughts. Okay. Am I responding? Yeah. All right. So first, uh, let me say that I started off getting a PhD in economics and then switched to political science. So I certainly understand where you're coming from. Um, And I think one of the reasons I switched is that the the thing I always like to say is that economists don't like to talk about power and political scientists don't like to talk about economics. Um, But... In terms of what I mean by theory, I, I, here I will defend Sebastian and other sort of IR paradigms. <laughs> I, you know, I think a theory, the way I always think of a theory is, you know, it's, it's, you know, do you have actors, do you have preferences, do you have constraints, and do you have strategies, and then does that lead to outcomes? Um, and I think most of the paradigms that I've put forward here would fit into that sort of rubric. Um, that said, I, I will acknowledge that there are certain paradigms that have, let's say, more internal contradictions, perhaps, uh, than others. Um, which is why, in some ways, what I'm trying to do here is not to sort of fully excavate what every individual theorist says in each of these paradigms, because towards that way lies madness. But I do what, what I do hope I'm doing is distilling what the principal theorists, you know, the sort of most widely cited in all of these wor- you know, paradigms are saying and sort of drawing on that. So an easy way to knock this down is to say, well, you're not you're not understanding true realism. You know, you really have to read, you know, Gulick to, to get that or, you know, you really have to read Walt in order to understand that, you know, not Waltz or something like that. I'm not entirely sure I buy that. But I do think these theories actually do. They are theories. Um, there are ways in which You know, for example, there is a, and this might be the difference between realism as a theory versus realpolitik as a worldview, I guess would be the way to put it. Um, And what I'm trying to do is talk about realists rather than realpolitik. Um, In terms of whether I'm making it harder by bringing in time and I don't have a definition, let me acknowledge that's a weakness in the sense of I've been holding off trying to come up with my own definition. Because in some ways, I do think the temporal questions are important, and by not thinking through them, you know, I want to think about them through first before I come up with my own definition in order to be able to uh, to have one that I think I can defend properly. Um, and also, I think my original wariness in talking about a definition was I wasn't sure even coming up with a definition would necessarily accomplish anything. Because that's the one thing political science doesn't have a shortage of. We have plenty of definitions about power. Um, and I don't think... I don't think I'm going to come up and say this is the one definition that will rule them all. You will all bow down, you know, before this definition. And so it's almost an exercise in futility to do it. That said, I might finally, you know, I might try to 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 uh to eventually concede and, and do that. In terms of realism being short-term and you know, long-term we're all dead. I agree with you. I when I say that I think realism is focusing on more short, you know, in some ways, this is the, the nature of language. If you say someone is a short-term thinking, you've you almost freighted in, again, a sort of implicitly negative assumption in terms of thinking that long-term is always going to, you know, uh, is going to last longer. But I completely agree with you. I'm not trying to say normatively whether short-term or long-term is better. They're just different. Um, and I agree with you, by the way, that there are ways in which constructivists and critical theorists might have more shorter-term processes at work, but I think their primary causal processes—you know—even if on occasion they ap- operate relatively quickly—primarily operate in a sort of longer time horizon, and therefore I'm, I'm relatively comfortable um, focusing on that. But you know, I agree with you that, in some ways, what, the thing that was striking me in terms of writing this paper was the ways in which some of these theorists actually are comfortable deferring to other paradigms depending upon the assumptions you're making about time. Um, and so in some ways that, you know, suggests perhaps more comedy between these paradigms than is often suggested in the literature. Okay,
0: Lindsay has
3: a two finger. I have a quick question. On how you're defining time, are you defining it in a constant sense? Or can time be accelerated or slowed down? Because I know today when you think about diplomacy it can almost happen immediately, you know, my button's larger than yours compared to <clears throat> in the past where the process was a lot longer.
1: Um, that's a that's a great question. You also had that great point during you know lunch as well. So you're you're having a good run. Um, but look this way. I think there are ways in which technology can cause time to speed up, or cause sort of you know in organization theory we often talk about organizations have either tight coupling or loose coupling. Meaning, in tight coupling, if you make a decision at time t. There're sort of fast acting effects immediately after that, um, whereas in a more loosely coupled organization, and actually I think the, the paradigmatic example of that is supposed to be a university, um, you know if you make a decision at time T, it doesn 't necessarily have that you know, dramatic effects going forward. Um, so I think the answer is, is that I, you know in some ways the very nature of time might change over time, which is you 're correct that in previous you know, um, in previous periods, it might be the case that you had somewhat longer, you know, what we would consider in constant units of time to react to things. But that said, the more I think about this, the more I'm not sure that matters because, you know, if you want to talk about – I just wrote something that came out in International Relations where even if you talk 100 years ago about, let's say, the start of World War I, what is startling when you read about that is how everyone felt like things were happening extremely quickly even though presumably the technologies that were being used then were slower than the technologies that are being used now. Um, So I'm not sure if it makes that much of a difference, but I guess I would close with this by saying the thing that I need to move forward and the one thing that I haven't really done that I want to sort of do in the next step is how the actors in each of these theories, whether their own perception of time, is in and of itself a source of power. In other words, the degree to which actors whether they see themselves as having a longer period of time to operate in or a longer time horizon versus a shorter time horizon gives them certain advantages or disadvantages. Um, And in some ways that's the sort of next sort of theoretical step I have to take after this one. Thank you.
0: Rose?
3: Um, Yeah, so great talk. I love big IR theory, so bring it on. Awesome. Um, But I have a couple of questions, of course, um, and comments. So on the one hand, I feel like of your two interventions or your typology, mm-hmm. the disjuncture between so the what you call the temporal it's like the temporal returns to scale, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I think that's the more interesting, and that's also what's doing really the heavy lifting for mm-hmm. you, because I think that that only the in terms of specifying time horizons, um, I'm less convinced that particular paradigms assume or have to assume time horizons or that it's something that's sort of inherent to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if they assume different time horizons, it only matters because you could have these two different views about whether power at time t equals more power at time t2 or less power at time t2. So there's this possibility for disjuncture. Like you do something today that you're using power today, in the future it can actually. Backfire or can lead to a negative thing, right? Mm -hmm. So then it really does matter what time frame are you looking at because you can have you know positive here, negative here, or you can have sort of positive, positive, something like that, right? Um, So I want you to unpack that a little bit more, Um, and I, in particular, you know, what does it mean to use power? (laughs) And because you rely on this idea of using power a lot for. Um, the temporal returns issue. And just sort of thinking of some of your examples, like Eikenberry. I don't think of Eikenberry as saying that, you know, countries are using power at T1, and then at T2, they have even more power because of the power they used at T1. Like, I see Eikenberry, and I see him as saying, at T1, they do <laughs> not use power, right? They agree to restrain themselves, right? Or constrain themselves, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, exactly. They're giving up some mass, some amount of power mm-hmm. so that in the future they can have more power. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just not sure. You know, what does using it mean? How do you sort of see that, etc. Um, etc. Cetera, et cetera.
1: Um, so on the the time horizon thing, I take your point, and I, you know, I will. Uh, I'll need to think about it more in terms of using power. I guess you know, in the in the liberal sense. The creation of institutions, I think, is what I think of when you know, with respect to the exercise of power, um, which is to say that, that Eikenberry talks about binding the idea that you're going to create these institutions, and those institutions are supposed to act as a constraint on the hegemon, which is presumably what will attract others to join that institution. Um, and I certainly do think that, I mean, that, that's the logic as explained. But there's also something else going on, which is, first of all, it might be that you say that the institution is going to constrain you, but then the question is whether the institution actually does constrain you. Um, and you can argue that uh, in some ways the debate, I think, again, this goes back to the interesting debates about the liberal international order we're having where all the critics of the liberal international order almost glory in pointing out all the various ways in which the U.S. has defied the very order that it established, saying, see, look at you know what it's done here, 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 and here, and here. Um, but that said, I think the other, the other way in which liberal institutionalists think about this is, is the efficiency of power. Shot through their literature is the notion that if you institutionalize the rules of the game, what it allows hegemons to do or great, you know, the great power to do is essentially exercise power in a far less costly and more effective way than if they were to do so outside of that institutional structure. And so that's in some ways what I'm, I'm thinking of when I think of sort of positive returns to power, which is it might be easier to exercise power or to you know change an outcome through working through the institution than working outside the institution. And I certainly think liberals believe that is the more important thing. Um, now the question is whether, you know, in some ways, I guess, I guess the, I suppose the answer is that while Eikenberry thinks of it as an act of self, you know, of, of binding, I think the creation of institution actually is is, you know, an exercise in power, because in some ways, and even Eikenberry acknowledges this, when you are creating an institution as a hegemon, what you are trying to do is create an institution that presumably accords with your preferences, you know, that accords with the outcomes that you want. Um, so compared to not doing it, yeah, I think it's an exercise in power. And I do think, you know, it, it, it's not to diminish or dismiss the idea that you're constraining yourself, but you might be willing to take the short-term constraint in terms of being, you know, it being far easier to exercise power over time. I guess.
3: But then there's also the sort of problem of are you talking about, you know, so how, A, how costly is it? How much power does it take? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and what, I hate to say what kind of power because you don't like that, but. No,
1: no, no, no go ahead. But that's but what fine. What kind that's of power pa-
3: you know, Are we talking military power? Right. Right. Yeah. right? I mean, that's like a totally different ballgame. Right?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, although. Generally speaking, liberals don't talk about the use of military power to create institutions. I mean, only in the sense, only in the sense of after a great power war, then it becomes, uh, it becomes the sort of natural thing to do. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think the, the, the form of power that I think is most amenable to sort of liberals on this is actually Gruber's argument, the sort of go-it-alone power notion, which is if you can say, look, we're going to create this institution, you're either on board or not. And you can argue that actually, that logic is shot through a lot of the sort of creations of the liberal international order. That's even more strongly in my, you know, in favor of my claim about temporal returns to power than anything else, because that's not a binding argument. That's a, you're either on this or not, and if you're not, you're worse off. Yeah. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Eugene, you have
4: a question? Sure. Go ahead. So a, a couple of points, Dan. Thanks for coming to the second time. I've heard this paper; it's good. Sorry.
0: Um, uh,
4: uh, so the first thing is really quick. Um, I think you're done. I don't think you're at the beginning. Um, in a sense that. Um, well, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, um, uh, um, I think uh, you have an interesting idea. Um, uh, you could publish this in a good place, and it will be assigned. Uh, as the concluding week of every intro-IR undergraduate or IR theory graduate class. And, you know, this is a really useful framing way to, to teach and discuss and integrate big paradigms that we all teach. I don't think you will gain much additional anything by trying to rethink from four perspectives multiple great moments in the history of international relations. Like trying to rewrite, you know, Graham Allison's bad book as Dan Dresner's better book um, isn't worth it. Like you're done. Um, uh, Now, the problems, uh, so um, uh, uh, three quick things in escalating order of difficulty thing to think about. The first is when you talk about using power um, or the negative returns to power in the realist paradigm, you're, you, you're, I think, um, stuck in international relations land. That the negative effect of me exercising power is that other countries um, uh, balance against me and right. resist in some way, fight back. Um, whereas I think um, uh, using up power um, can happen just strictly internally. It doesn't have to be, like I think you're leaving aside one of the major reasons that power might have decreasing returns, that it's used up, that if I use some of my latent tower to build power to build a bunch of tanks, Mm -hmm. or Whatever, or I, you know, fire off a bunch of missiles and they blow up. I can't the, the, use them again. You're they're thinking gone. that capabilities
1: need to be husbanded. That if you expend yes, them, you can't, you can't replenish, right? Yeah. And, okay. And in
4: fact, That's I, fair. So I just think they're leaving that out, and you mm-hmm. shouldn't. That's the small thing. But actually, Rose's question, it, it, the same thing happens in liberalism. Uh, I think so. Um, I'm not sure liberalism has positive returns now, as I think about it this way. So you use up power now to create the institution. You bind yourself. That's why it's consuming your power today is that you're, like Eikenberry says, you're putting constraints on yourself. And the whole idea of Eikenberry and then also, you know, mentor Kohane after hegemony is that um, my power can disappear and get used up. That's not a positive returns for me, but the system can still stay in place because of the institutions. So it's not like my power persists. My mm-hmm. power is gone, I created the institution and I decayed. But the system doesn't blow up. So, I, I, I'm not, I, just, I guess I'm not buying your um, mm-hmm. idea that uh, uh, liberalism is about increasing returns to power. Okay, uh, uh, second thing is, um, uh, Actually, I'm just going to skip the second thing. The third thing, because it's already sort of been covered. So the second thing was, what the hell is power? Yeah. Which you've already talked about. But uh, um, uh, I just wanted to. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, power is a resource, not an outcome. This is the problem with the Dahl definition. Is the Dahl definition doesn't separate independent and dependent variables, right? And this is a well-known debate. I think ultimately if your article is useful in a grant project as opposed to what I said you're done about, um, you have to wade through the debate and make an argument that says this is not a new definition, mm-hmm. but of all the definitions that already exist, this is the right definition and the reason we know is because of my argument about time. Okay. And you got to say that. Anyway, point three, um, uh, uh, at dinner the other night, Mike and Sebastian and I were having a, an extended disagreement because we're no. a bunch of yeah I don't have to that be but we're a bunch of realists and we couldn't agree about or even come up with uh, a, a sensible idea of what is realism and um, uh, it's it's yeah uh, point to Amatov no sorry it's, a, it's it's a big it's it's um, so I think for you to sort the paradigms you go to these big texts and sort of find some quotes about time or something like that, (laughs) I actually don't know what is the center, like if you wanted, Mike was invoking Lakatos, what is the core of the research program for each of these paradigms? And I think that's actually a really hard thing. This is why I said this is the third and most damning, Is if your goal is to sort the paradigms, you have to actually tell me what the paradigms are about. Um, And I think it's very hard to do, I don't know the answer to this, but especially, Especially if you believe that all the paradigms are about power, because of course, what I was arguing is that the thing that makes something realist is that it's about power. Hmm. Um, If all the paradigms are about power, what distinguishes realism from liberalism, from constructivism, from critical theory? Like, uh, you know, what are the paradigms?
1: Um, Okay, I'm going to take everything that you said before the last question is just thank you and I will think about that. Um, On the last one, I mean, you know, if you want to go all lack I think the question asks is what is the negative heuristic in each of these um, in each of these theories? And maybe this is absurdly optimistic of me, but I actually don't think... I think the negative heuristic of realism is relatively straightforward. It's that the world is defined by anarchy. Anarchy imposes powerful constraints on the preferences of actors operating in the world of anarchy, which means that essentially it winds up being an extremely conflictual world. Um, you know, I mean, you can go to... Which, which I think is actually something that, you know, let's say someone like Waltz or someone like Mirsheimer that fits both of their sort of, you know, origin stories, I think. Um, I think the moment you go beyond that, then you start getting into the kind of 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 disagreements that you're talking about and there's obviously disagreements about whether states in realism are security maximizers or power maximizers so on and so forth. Within right, within realism. Andy Merafshek
4: pointed out I think very usefully that you know, liberals all believe in anarchy
1: too. Liberals believe in anarchy. What they don't believe is that anarchy is such a powerful constraint that it affects preferences in the same way that realism does. That's how I always think about it. The, what, the difference between the two is that for realists Anarchy is such a powerful constraint that even if states wanted to cooperate, they can't entirely do it because they can't trust the other actors because you're operating in a world of self-help and you can never trust that the other actor isn't going to gain more than you are and put you in a disadvantaged situation. On the other hand, I think liberals, for lack of a way of putting it, are mellower about anarchy. They acknowledge that anarchy is there, but much like Locke, they don't necessarily think it leads to the war of all against all um, and that it is possible if you have, you know, to cooperate in this world. So I, again, maybe this is absurdly naive of me, but I actually do think you can talk about a common negative heuristic in each of these paradigms. It has to be relatively limited, because the moment you go beyond that, there start being serious disagreements. But, and maybe it was just the way I was educated in grad school. But I do think it's possible.
0: Excellent. Mike?
5: OK, Bob. Um, so we live in the world of narrow hypothesis testing. Well, Dan Dresner takes on power. Uh, you, you really got uh, the cojones. Um, but, like Rose... I was I, in
1: Chicago for seven years, Mike. Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I really uh, I admire that.
5: Gene's um, point about the doll definition being uh, circular, um, or at least the way it's often interpreted, uh, I think is right on target. But the, the way I guess I'm coming to think about it after reading your paper is that power is a research program you know to try to determine the sources of successful coercion among states um, and the the un, or the falsifiable hypotheses are the if then you know what sort of power um, works how quickly sort of yada 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 um, and so i i actually thought that in reading the paper You made a mistake by going and looking at the literature first before clarifying exactly what what you meant by power. Because it sort of feels like you're getting pulled in a lot of different directions that aren't ultimately helpful in sort of clarifying uh, the concept. Um, And two of the directions I think are that you know might be sort of cul-de-sacs are one a lot of what the constructivists and the critical theorists are talking about is not, in my view, power, where you're coercing somebody to change uh, their behavior. It's about um, convincing them uh, to that you know behaving a different way is the right way to uh, to behave. So, defining um, power. Uh, against the alternatives uh, and especially uh, what I would characterize as influence is very important and I think it it would help you winnow down uh, a lot of this literature uh, that gets really amorphous by conflating power with um, you know uh, other sources uh, you know that uh, contribute to successful influence but don't uh, involve uh, uh, power Second thing is, it seems to me that power can vary, and here is the if then part of it, in a lot of different ways. But you want to be sort of systematic about that in a way that the literature isn't. So, you know, realism's focus on power is mostly on material power, Mm -hmm. and the temporal implications of that. Follow quite logically from that. If somebody's got a gun to your head um, and you know threatens to put a bullet through it, it's a pretty short-term uh, way uh, of uh, you know thinking about the world. Whereas ideational power, uh, not surprisingly, uh, would operate you know over a uh, a much longer uh, time horizon. Um, and there are other ways. I think you could sort of break down power but the you know I don't think the way it's used in the IR literature um, is consistent on that score uh, because you know I mean power is sort of all over the place and you know a lot of times uh, it doesn't look very different when you actually unpack it from influence or other ways of getting people to do what you want um, that are distinct I think analytically Um, from uh, thinking about it in terms of uh, uh, of power. Um, And I guess last thing I'll say is the, uh, I mean this is, power's been an unresolved issue since well before uh, uh, Bacharach and Barrett's in 1962. But it's no accident, comrade, that, you know, we, we really haven't gotten this sort of straightened out. Um, and so my hat's off to you to, to take it on, but I, I think the way to take it on has to be initially conceptual. Um, and you got to stay away from you know these second, third, fourth, fifth faces of power. Uh, because that, that's just, here I'm going to go all l- lackatose on you, I, I think that's what's contributed to making the power research agenda degenerate. I, I think you got to identify uh, a hardcore. The definition has to be that power is about you know getting people to do stuff that they don't want to do. And then the question is, there are competing uh, uh, types of power, and under what circumstances does material power contribute to that? Under what circumstances do other sources of power contribute to that? And, and I think if you can clarify that, that would be. Uh, a pretty important contribution, but that will also, I think, force you to distinguish power from influence and other ways of getting people to do stuff uh, that sometimes people call power, but I think are very
1: different. So I guess I, I guess the answer is I fundamentally disagree. In the in that, yeah. in, in that I mean in the, in that I do th- I, let me put this way: I, it's fair to point out the ways in which the definition of power, become, you know, by the time you get to the Foucauldian definition of power, everything is power, which means nothing is power. So I certainly accept the, the 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 notion that the definition might need to be constrained. On the other hand, I also think the exercise of power is more than just sheer coercion. Um, I don't think it can just be limited to that. Um, and in some ways, the very fact that you talk about power and influence as if they're separate things, when to me they're part of the same thing. Um, you know, might reflect disagreement among us. But I also guarantee you that if I say, look, we're just going to start with Dahl or we're going to start with what is essentially a, a a, you know, restrictive definition of power, which is the use of, you know, pressure to cause actor B to do what it would otherwise not do. I think I've already, you know, half of the I.R. literature I've already rendered useless. Um, Or rendered that's not going to pay attention to me, which I understand why you might want, but I'm less interested in doing that Um, And to be fair, I I, You know in some ways if nothing else, you know, maybe this doesn't go anywhere. Maybe, you know, you just write But I will say the one benefit of thinking about this is that I actually think I got some of the critical theorists in a way that I never have understood before um, in terms of reading this stuff Um, and therefore, I, and I don't think it's, you know, completely useless. Um, I do think they have some interesting, you know, ideas on this, so I don't want to exclude that. And indeed, I think one of the, one of the issues, I went to, were you in Toronto last week? Oh, so, yeah, I went to, the International Studies Association meeting was last week, and I went to a, a round table on the future of IR theory that was easily one of the most depressing things I've ever been to. Um, because it was folks like Randy Schweller on one side, you know, sort of talking the way he normally talks. And, and then, um, you know, you sort of had, you know, critical theorists, um, also on the panel and they weren't, they literally weren't saying anything that the other one would, would understand. It got so bad that actually Dan Kaufman stood up and tried to like it was almost functioning like a marriage therapist trying to get them, like a marriage counselor trying to get them to talk to each other. And maybe in my own way that's what I'm trying to do with this paper which is again I want, part of this is not just about power, it's also about getting the paradigms to talk to each other.
5: Okay, can I just ask you a yeah. very simple follow up? Mm-hmm. So I read your book on sanctions and uh, I changed my mind. Um, yeah. say, I, I agree with uh, Dresner on this topic. Does
1: that mean you Sorry, have, we got that on audio, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
5: Does that mean you have power over me?
1: <laughs> That's a fair point. Um,
5: I mean, it isn't a lot of...
1: I really want to say yes to that, but I, I,
5: yeah,
1: but I, but I, mean, I understand what you're saying. Yeah.
5: Isn't a lot of human relations and a non-trivial amount of relations among states not about, um, you know, it's my way or the highway, Um, but rather, uh, you know, we're we're going to interact in a way uh, that, you know, we come to some consensus
1: uh, about what we're going to do. I would. So let me put it this way. I if, you know, when I was working at Treasury, um, one of the things we had to do was try to convince other countries to adopt anti-money laundering legislation. Um, And in many cases, these jurisdictions either hadn't thought about it or had thought about it but weren't, you know, were wary about it for a variety of reasons and so on and so forth. So on the one hand, in many cases, we pressured these other countries to, to do this. But in other instances, what we did was engage in technical assistance where we talked to the finance ministries and said, look, this is how you set up a financial intelligence unit. This is how you, you know, to uh, deal with the banks in your sector and so on and so forth. And what we were doing was essentially causing these other jurisdictions to organize their states in a way similar to ours because that way we could, you know, deal with them in a far better way. And I don't think that's sheer... Per- I don't, let me just say, that's not persuasion. That's not, you know, the smaller state reading my manual and deciding, okay, this is the way we should do it. I think there is power at work there. Um, it might not be coercive, I mean, there was a coercive element to it, but there were other cases in which it wasn't coercion. There were other cases in which you know, we actually said, look, this is the way we think we should, you, know, you should do it. We've done it this way. It's been very successful. In some ways, that might be sort of nice soft power at work in terms of, of potentially um, attempts at emulation or what John Meyer would call institutional isomorphism. Um, but I do think, I, I don't think you can talk about that as not an example of power. It's just not coercive. And, and I know you, know you don't like that.
5: Well, then, then what isn't power in relations, you know, among states or uh, among individuals? Um, and maybe if, you if, think it is all Maybe the answer
1: is, is that if you know, I go to, to this state and say, hey, look, we're setting up the financial intelligence unit this way and we're doing it so on and so forth, and the state says, no, thanks, we're good, and then it's like, okay, all right and that's how it ends that's not power being exercised or and this actually gets to something i think it goes back to something that rose actually said which is one of the things i think i do need to do going forward is distinguished between exercises of power and what we would consider successful exercises (laughs) of power. You know, there's ways in which, you know, we tend to think about power generating negative feedbacks, not necessarily because it was an effective use, but rather it was an ineffective use. You know, think about the war in Iraq, for example, which is a sort of classic way of thinking about this, contrasting with, let's say, the operation in Kosovo. You know, the the Kosovo operation might be seen as a successful exercise in power because it required far less investment of costs, and so on and so forth. Although there's a long-term case to be made that Kosovo winds up being more damaging um, because it essentially creates a precedent that Russia's exploited um, ever since. That's something I, as I said, this is something that's sort of knocking right in my head and I haven't thought out fully, but it, it, it complicates things further, which is to say it's not just about exercises of power, it's about competent versus incompetent exercises of power. Jeremy? Hi, uh,
6: Jeremy, was a fantastic talk. Um I want to return back to uh, the, this idea of time. Uh, uh, maybe try and phrase it in. Sorry, the idea of what? The idea of time, and Tom Gene, uh, Gene and Rose, and some others have uh, talked about it. and Maybe I could phrase it in a, a different way to give uh, a perspective on it. So and I'll just do it with a scenario and ask you a question. Um, so let's say that I am a megalomaniacal dictator, because you know, I'm a grad student, I want to stay up to lead mobile, right? Um, and, I'd like to, to develop norms, right, because, you know, as you said, right, they're sticky, right, and you identify this as this long-run kind of a uh, process. But, you know, I'm a dictator, and I know that dictators face lots of short-term crises, right, and so if I develop norms so that they're sticky, so that in the future when I inevitably face these short-term crises, they don't change, and them not changing as something that works to my advantage in the short-term, Am I concerned with the long run, or am I concerned with
1: the short run? I'm not sure how to answer that. I guess live for this way, the most important thing you as a dictator, the most important norm you as a dictator want to impose is that you as a dictator are infallible. and therefore whatever you do in the short term or long run should not be questioned. Um, I think that's one of those norms that probably works both in the sh- or I mean, I guess the answer is, is that the norm itself takes a while to, to actually take hold. Um, but once you do it, it obviously works you know, for you in the short term and in the long term. Right.
6: The thing I was thinking about, as Gene mentioned, you know, investing in the short term, yeah. right, and it's a cost, but then you get something system wide, you know, the system stays preserved maybe in the long term. Mm-hmm. I guess I was thinking Maybe the concept of a state that you operate with is that maybe a state in itself is an iterated kind of concept. That is embedded, right, with processes that are operating on uh, you know different time horizons all at once.
1: That's interesting, actually. Um, I need to think about that a little more. But as I said, one of the thing, one of the sort of next steps I want to do is, in some ways, this was the lit review. I want to obviously do something more about this, and and the the thing I want to do more on, and you're seeing some interesting work more recently on this, I think David Edelstein's book is a good example of this, is what happens when different actors have different time horizons um, and whether or not the different time horizons cause them to behave or think about power in different ways. Um, And so it might not just be a, and I've sort of implicitly talked about the state as a unitary actor, but I like the idea of different components of the state having different kinds of time horizons. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. Although, it goes to Amatov's point that if I do that, I'm just, compl- I'm just muddying the waters even further, the more I disaggregate the state. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, can I just comment on this exchange, which is that uh, this is it's one of the many reasons why Dahl's definition is so problematic, because he's
1: focusing on... So, why, why dolls of, Dahl's
2: definition is yeah. so problematic because he's focusing on, essentially, a person or a group now. Mm-hmm. Whereas power can be thought of in systemic terms, plus, as a dictator, you, you know, it's not... For example, in a democracy, uh, the leaders create norms not for themselves, although they would like to, but it's for the system too. So if, if what you're saying is that you create norms that the leader is always infallible, that goes beyond you. Okay, so so you might exercise your power wrongly, but it doesn't mean that right. the power is not going to last beyond that. Mm-hmm. So it's not for a person. And and about Mike's point, I think he is uh, of course he's narrowing it down, but. Again, it's, it's not a useful thing to say whether this is an act of power or not. Power is a theoretical concept to understand many things. It's not like... Uh, like uh, just style. <laughs> no, because, because it's not like I'm just getting information. That That's often still that way, that I'm just giving you good information, but, it, but one should view from the lens of power as you rightly do. Joe.
7: Sure. Yeah, it's a great paper. Um, I think this is going to be a sight factory, but I agree with huge you, that you're nearing the point of diminishing marginal returns and over time the impact will decay. Um, <laughs> two, two questions though. As somebody that's um, suffered with the ambiguity and contradictory statements of theorists about time, I feel you, well, why does this problem exist in the first place? So for me, this is like, of course we all suck at talking making predictions and talking about time. And so there's little no strong professional incentives for people to act like Nostradamus and say bullshit and wave their hands and then look prophetic because they can ex-post justify. But maybe you feel differently, which is, to you know, my second, if you could just speculate yeah. on why the problem was there in the first place. You could sp- the second question, though, is what's your theory of victory? Because to me, this is Dan, <laughs> Dan Dresner coming out as a constructivist, that you're going to speak truth to power and then the field is going to do, you know, temporally intelligent stuff.
1: Um, all right. So I'll answer the second question first. The second, I'll, I'll, I will have won if, in fact, you start seeing more explicit conversations about what time, the role that time is playing in our different theories, um, because I do think that's the the, and also fungibility to some extent, but that's in some ways related to time. So I think if people are are more explicit in terms of of their definitions and their assumptions about time, that's thing one. And thing two is. Whether or not we this sort of temporal returns debate actually becomes a thing, then I definitely win. But I, you know that's that's pie in the sky. Um, as to why this problem exists in the first place, <sighs> um, it's funny you, when you say it's it's you know all about making bullshit predictions. The reason I reacted the way I did is that I was thinking, no, by our very nature, you know, the, the, the best pundits are the ones who make predictions that simultaneously go this way and that, so they can't ever be falsified. Um, you know. Uh, that's what they do. Yeah, that's yeah.
7: That's yeah. what the whole
1: literature does. Well, I don't know if that's what the whole literature does. What's the I mean, literature. A lot of the literature, yeah. And everybody
7: but, whose name is up on your slides.
1: Ooh, damn. That was. Wow, okay. All right, you said that, not me. Um, well, no, there's. <laughs> Your name is Parent, i um, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Or let me put it this way. At least there are some predictions that these theorists make that presumably you can falsify. You know, when Walt says that bipolarity is more stable than multipolarity, that presumably is something that we can check over time to see whether or not he's right. Um, but I acknowledge that what you're saying. You know, that said, I'm not going to deny that there are some of the elements of these theorists where... Basically, anytime anyone starts talking about the rich tradition of a paradigm, that's code for me of, yeah, they're introducing contradictions within them so they can be right no matter what. Um, which, again, is why I am trying to focus primarily on the core text. And I do think there's things you can derive from them that are you know more clear than others, I guess. Um, but as to why this exists in the first place, um, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. That's inter- I mean, You know. I, I think it might be one thing. Might be that the shift towards what we would consider the Lakatosian paradigms—the notion that we're supposed to be doing proper, you know, scientific paradigms—time sort of falls away in a lot of those theories, right? The idea is that you're trying to create theories that are ageless, that don't necessarily, you know, that that you're trying to predict things, you know, for for all time. And I think weirdly, if you do that, then you stop thinking of time altogether. You think you're trying to create a universal theory. And again, if you think about it, it's absurd that we would ever think we would do that for something like international relations, because the evolution of international relations over time is such that talking about stuff now doesn't look like the things that we were talking about, you know, we would be talking about if we were all in the Roman Empire. Um, There are some continuities, there are some problems that persist, but there's a whole wide element of international relations that does change over time. Um, But I do think it might be that drive to sort of say, I am developing this theory for all time, and once I do that, I don't need to think about it ever again.
0: We have a two-finger and then two more questions and seven minutes left. I, I just want to pick up on the suggestion about the difficulty
8: of making predictions and say that this is sometimes problems for historians. You'd be familiar with Paul Kennedy's great book, The Rise and Fall of Powers, and uh, Paul's predictions that Japan Inc was going to be this great challenge to the United States in the 1980s. And uh, Paul, who made a lot of money off that book, says, look, I was just wrong about which Asian power and which decade it was going to be a challenge to the United States. But anyway, my serious question (laughs) is this. Does history have anything to say to you, the study of history, in your analysis of time? Uh, How how do you work in, say, a book like Kennedy's, where he's trying to track over time rise and decline of various powers, looking at factors like economics, and over stretch, military power, etc. Does that weigh in at all in any of your analysis, or it all has to be focused on IR theories?
1: I mean, I think the extent, first of all, if, if I ever see you again, remind me to tell you about the amusing anecdote where I fell asleep on Paul Kennedy once. Um, but beyond that, I think to the extent to which Kennedy would fit into this rubric, it would be that he would believe in the negative, in, in sort of negative returns to power. Because the, in some ways, I think I had it in the slide, imperial overstretch is all about for Kennedy, the notion that every great power's reach eventually exceeds their grasp, they will in doing so, and this actually gets to you just point that by doing so, you deplete your economic base, which almost guarantees that you will then eventually contract. I do think, I mean, this might be the one policy thing that I you know, wanna talk about from this paper is that one of the things that I'm not completely convinced about or one of the things I think we need to think about is that as weirdly in debates about the sort of future of U.S. power, there's this all this talk about, oh, my God, we're spending too much on the military, or, you know, we need to spend more on the military. What's striking to me is how little we actually spend on the military, which is not to say that I'm advocating, let me be clear, I'm not advocating we spend more. But if you talk about percentage of GDP, the United States now spends far less than we used to, which I find, you know, really interesting. I'm really just saying this to goad huge at this point. Um, but... There are, you know, there <laughs> there are interesting questions to, to, to sort of think about that. But that said, to the extent that Kennedy would fit into this logic, I do think it would be that he's simultaneously looking at the long term, but he believes in in, in sort of negative returns to power, which would make Paul Kennedy a critical theorist, which I'm just tickled by as the prospect of. Uh,
0: so I'll do a quick uh, two-finger, then Minju will close okay. the shop. And I would just say there could be an argument that you could make that there'd be strong positive returns to power, and uh, if. Every day you survive, you have a strong positive return. Everybody who's balancing is motivated by survival. They're getting a strong positive return to power. What you have is a characterization of realism, in which there's typically imperial overstretch, um, over-aggression, engaging optional wars, all that kind of stuff. You're putting all those assumptions of negative stuff in a very positive world in which most states survive, and that's a strong return to power. That's just my two-finger rule. Close that up at dinner. Minju, take it away.
4: Oh yeah, due to the lack of time, I will just have two quick questions. So, in figure one, so critical theory has a shorter temporal scope of causal process than constructivism, and I was wondering about your underlying logic. So, why critical theory? Because critical theory engages both. uh, Critical theory is engaged both construction and deconstruction, but it has a shorter time.
1: Like I think I had critical theorists having a long term. To be clear, I thought, did I do that wrong in the paper? Damn. Yeah, so yeah I was wondering like, that. No, temporal scope of key causal processes is long. The temporal returns to power are negative.
3: Compared to constructivism,
1: oh, compared to constructivism, I think it's yeah. I do think it's shorter. Yes. Okay, that's fair. Um, relative to constructivists i do think the critical theorists focus you know think that uh, focus on a shorter time horizon uh, mostly because i think critical theorists believe genuinely that the act of criticism by actually sort of they think there are, they have arguments that that suggest that that you can actually destroy norms more quickly than perhaps the construct you know the constructivists believe that you can be created so that's in some ways why it's it's less than constructivism but it's still longer than the other two paradigms
4: uh, my last question is about just so like for my curiosity. So, if you put yourself on this uh, in this prep, where would you put yourself?
1: Well, I see our time is up, and so. Uh, um, I mean, I get you know. I I I think the answer. What? Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you think they're all the same? I don't think they're all the same. And I think overall. Yes, exactly. This is you know exactly. It's true. This is the way to think about this. So this is a nice two-dimensional, you know, graph. I'm here, <laughs> looking over it because I have the added, you know, dimension of time. More seriously, I think it depends on the question you're asking. So when I did sanctions, for example, I'm clearly in the realist box there. You know, it's on short-term time horizons, and it, it's, uh, you know, to some extent, I'm not that confident in terms of, of sanctions working unless the uh, unless the relationship is close. But in some of my other work, you know, the ideas industry stuff. I'm moving out in terms of longer time horizons, I guess. So it depends on the project. So we have another
0: quick second. Critical um, thinking is strongly negative returns to power. Are you saying that they're a bunch of losers because they have no
1: influence? Are you saying that their enterprise is destructive? No, I'm saying saying their enterprise is destructive, which they would gleefully agree in. Their enterprise is to destroy whatever the privileged prerogatives of power are. assuming they have power. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming they assume they have power, I guess is the best. You
0: have to make up your mind.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: Okay. Thank you.
6: If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.